Welcome to Better Ideas. I'm your host, Pete Calhoun, and this week we're myth-busting with Ed Hamaji from Better Homes and Gardens, who's giving his tips and tricks and a somewhat science lesson on how to turn the bland into grand with slow cooking. And from the Jason Hodges Better Homes and Gardens team, Graham Rowe takes sustainable living into the garden with his take on sustainable garden design. Now, don't forget, you can watch Better Homes and Gardens every Friday night on 7 at 7. And this week, I'm doing a house walk around with Joanna Griggs in Melbourne. It's called the Cornerstone House. It's a cracker. This house, get this, they've imported all these massive blocks of stone and literally built a house around them. Now, we're not sure whether it was designed for Fred Flintstone or George Jetson, but it's called the Cornerstone House, and it's this week on Better Homes and Gardens. Friday nights on 7 at 7. Okay, let's get into it. Well, before we do, just a reminder, download the Acast app if you haven't already so you can watch along as well as listen along to this conversation. The winter months, the days are getting shorter. Time seems to slow down. Everything moves a little bit slower. Speak for yourself, Pete. Including, <laughs> inc- in, including cooking. I call your old man just yet, but if you're going to plug it that way. I was trying to set up the mood, Ed. We're talking slow cooking, slow cooking in winter. What? What does it mean? Well, for starters, I don't understand why we talk about slow cooking in winter. It is a year-round thing. But I'll take you, I'll take your lead on that. I mean, slow cooking is fundamentally not about a return to nature, earth mother thing. It's about the fact that some foods react better to lower temperature, longer process cooking than they do to quick grilling. So for example, we're talking about the tougher cuts of meat. And the first thing you need to understand is why are some cuts of meat tougher? than others. Surely that's the starting point, yeah? What exercise do you do? Well, I, I like to swim a lot, a okay. run. You go know, for a run? Occasionally in the gym, but okay. mainly, mainly If you water. go for a run, say, how far would you run? Oh, on the soft sand these days, Ed, I'd do... Four to five K? Yeah. Okay. After five Ks on soft sand, what can you tell me about your body? Well, it's ready for have a swim and... Um, but your muscles yeah, well, hurt. They do, and they, they hurt generally like two days after, like because they're still sort of sore. Oh, well, it's because you're getting old. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but the immediate hurt <laughs> you're feeling there, do you know what causes that? Oh, lactic acid. Yeah, lactic, lactic acid, acid you know about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the lactic acid's a really interesting thing. Uh, that burning sensation is actually a trigger that your body gets to tell your proteins that they need to re- they need to double themselves. And that's how your muscles get stronger. So it's the trigger telling your body, you need to heal now, you need to heal now. As a result, you get stronger and your muscles get tougher, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Because you produce yeah. lactic acid. Yeah. Well, guess what? The same applies to all living creatures. creatures. The more they exercise a muscle, the sorer it gets, mm. the tougher it gets, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, let's take a cow. Yeah. What are the bits of the cow that move the most? Yeah. Well, you'd think about the legs because yeah. they're always walking. Yeah. You think about the tail because it's always swishing. Yeah. You Shoulders. think about the cheeks because yeah. they're always chewing. You think about the neck because the head's always going up and down. And so where are your tough cuts? The chuck, the brisket, the shins, the tail, yeah? yeah? And these, as a result, are the cuts that need to be slow cooked because they have developed a whole lot of thing called collagen. Collagen is the tough part of the muscles, right. okay? But the interesting thing about collagen is you can actually do science at home. You can transform. Like, it's, it's culinary alchemy. Oh, come on. It's <laughs> culinary alchemy, mate. You can take collagen and convert it into something called gelatin, which is really soft and gooey and unctuous and beautiful. Unctuous? Look it up. <laughs> Great word. One of my favorites. All righty. And the reason, the way you do this transformation. I can't challenge it. I don't know what he's. I'm, 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 
Okay, you know when you eat yeah. a lamb shank and, yeah. and you get that bit where your lips almost stick together because it's like a bit sticky and delicious? Yeah. yeah? yeah. That's unctuous, okay? Unctuous. Which is a great word. I'm going to yeah. check so you You're getting sound unctuous. effects today. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. So that process is all about a thing called time over temperature. So to convert collagen into gelatin, you need to be able to cook at no more than 92 degrees centigrade. So you can't boil it, all right? Right. And for not less than three and a half hours. Okay. Now, there just, are- just, just, just back yeah. up again. Yes. So we're, we're slow cooking because yep. we're trying to break down the collagen in the Into meat. gelatin. Yeah. Into gelatin. Okay. Correct. Yeah, yeah, right. So the reason we're doing that is the actual muscle fibers themselves, they're never going to become more tender and they're never going to become juicier. It's actually a myth. The thing that makes these slow cooked meats tender and juicy and succulent is literally only the connective tissue. The actual fibers themselves are no different to steak fibers, all right? no, no different to primary cut fibers. They don't become juicier. It's really only the connective tissue that changes, right? right? Be not over 92 degrees, and the minimum time is three and a half hours. There are shortcuts you can take with pressure cookers, but I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm a, lo- a lover of pressure cookers, they don't give you as good a result. The other thing you should know is that you can overcook slow-cooked meats. And one of the great mistakes a lot of people make when they use one of those plug-and-play slow cookers, they leave it on all day, 12, 14 hours, and actually it comes out a little bit dry. And that's because eventually the fat and the gelatin end up splitting out of the solution and end up floating on the top. So the parts of the the animal, the tougher muscles, yep. they're good to be slow cooked yeah. to really sort of break up the meat and get the, the fibres to... Yep. And if you want to make, for example, a really good, say, ragu, which is like a, mm. an Italian stew to put through pasta, you actually go for a blend. I always go for a mixture of gravy beef, which is beef shin or ossobuco with the bone removed, and chuck. And the reason is that the gravy beef tastes way better, but is too lean. The chuck Eh, it tastes okay, but it's got that little bit more fat. You need yeah. a little bit of fat. As the great French chef, Paul Bocuse, once said, oh, fat is flavour. <laughs> and he's right. Before we get into the to the French lesson. Yes, sir. In terms I mean, of this, Yeah, in terms <laughs> of, uh, tell me, in terms of slow cooking, do I need a slow cooker or what can no, I use at home? What, no, what no, do no. I need to have you got a, Have you got a heavy cook? base saucepan with a lid? Yes. Right, have you got an oven? Yeah. Great. You put it on all day. Okay, but it's been on a, a lower temperature. Just- exactly right. So, like I said, you don't want to be over about uh, 92 degrees internal, but here's the rub. Mm-hmm. If you say I want to be 92 degrees internal, your oven wants to be on about 130, 125, because not all the heat will penetrate through. Okay? So, that's, that's just the inefficiencies of oven baking. And that's where only a slow cooker can be great. But you don't want to put it on all day. Like... Ideally, with a slow cooker, what you do, and a lot of them are programmable for exactly this reason. You can program it's time to go on and it's time to go off. So remember, if you want to do, let's let's take an idea, a beef bourguignon, yeah? yeah? Beef bourguignon. You want to brown the meat. So you'd have to do that in a pan first because you can't put the beef just in. And then you just put it into your slow cooker with the veggies, with the red wine that you've, gla- you've deglazed the beef pan with, and your beef stock and your bokeh garni, which is just your herbs and a little bit of garlic. You put it in, and you don't start it and program it to turn off at midday. No, 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 no. You program it to start at midday so that it's ready when you get home. Yep. And that is literally uh-huh. just a food safety thing. Yeah. Because you don't want it turning off at midday and then sitting on the bench for six hours. Potentially have a problem. So you do that before you go to work, get it to start at midday, and at six o'clock when you get home, it is perfect. Because six hours in a slow cooker is 
perfectly equivalent, roughly speaking, when I say perfectly, I only mean kind of, um, to about three and a half hours on a saucepan. We've been covering slow cooking with Ed. If I was to take one thing out of this, I really learned something here. It's actually the fibres that connect the muscle, which is the tasty parts of, of the meat. Yeah, yeah. When, when, you, when you cut through a piece of brisket and it all those seams of gristle and chewy fibrous stuff and you go, what is this? You go, what is it? It's delicious, baby. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking sustainable living on all sorts of levels over the past few weeks, but I've actually come across a term which I'm absolutely totally baffled by because it seems like a contradiction. Oh, it seems self-evident. Sustainable garden design, but inherently garden must be sustainable. Here to clear this up is is Graham. I mean, if I'm gardening, I'm being sustainable. You're taking it to yet another level. Basically, yeah. So, uh, okay, where to start with sustainability? Firstly, thank you for talking about sustainability. I feel like anything towards this movement is is a positive move. Mm. But in terms of sustainability being a buzzword, my industry, I'm, I'm from a horticulture industry, I'm from the garden industry. Sustainability has never been a buzzword. It's just been a way to practice horticulture. To be sustainable in, yeah. a, in a garden is to practice horticulture. Well, that's what I would have thought. The thing is, these days, a lot of people don't have the room for chooks. They don't have the room because everyone thinks sustainable. Oh, I've got a goat down the back. I've got chooks or I've got pigs. No, you, no, you can't. You, susta- being sustainable in your garden isn't just necessarily only about growing your own. That's a huge part of it, but it's not just that. So people who don't necessarily have room for a chook pen or anything like that, you can still be sustainable when it comes to designing your own garden. Practices like composting and things like that have been around since the dawn of time. That's still incredibly relevant. And actually, that's one of the key points to start at for designing any garden where you want to be sustainable. Yep. So sustainable gardening, okay, what is it? For me, it comes down to, and this is the big one and simple and most important, embracing your environment. So what does your front yard get in terms of aspect you might have a salty wind up in the northern beaches. Other yep. people are in the highlands. Some people are in amongst flats. Some people are in f- stinking hot full sun. Some people are on sand. Some people are on clay. Some people are on pavers. So in order to be sustainable, you embrace your elements. So you embrace your soils, how much rain you get, how much sun you get, how much wind you get, and garden with it. So potentially your weaknesses have to be included in your design. Have to. You, you don't want to be fighting stuff. You can't. You will never beat Mother Nature, and especially when it comes to gardening, it's just, it's just mm. you and your hose and a shovel against Mother Nature. Best be on her team. Yeah. But saying that, you don't have to just have veggies uh, and tough plants and boring. You can still look on on the show. I work a lot with with um, Jho on on the landscape and the garden design stuff. So we have managed this year and especially most of last year, most of our garden designs. I make sure that the styles are on trend. You know, we're following the plant trends and the material trends and things like that. But I make sure that everything we do is affordable and sustainable. And the best way we do that is we walk into a site, okay, let's look down first. What's the soil doing? Uh-huh. We've done a job at the start here. It was on complete full sand over near Clavelli. Yeah. Just full sand. That's That's my front yard. Right. This backyard was small, achievable backyard. It was, let's say, 30 square metres. And the guy was... Worked at night, he was a chef, full sand, full sun, are trying to achieve 
the MCG. That that's unsustainable. <laughs> it's not we work. all know that. Yeah. And I said to him, "Why do you want a lawn?" He goes, "Because well, I'm male and I'm Australian. I, mm. I assume that we all need a lawn." It was unachievable and it was unsustainable because of the. I mean, it was failing, and all he had, all he kept doing was flooding it with water, flooding it with fertilizer, trying to you know core it or trying to aerate or trying to add this and add that. So I said, "Okay, look, that's not working. That's not sustainable. Budgetary, and with your social life and your work life mm. and your family life and all that stuff. So let's step back. What can we do here to create?" an amazing space yet make it sustainable we ripped everything out and we added compost simplest thing everyone says compost 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 it's still relevant and will always be relevant so especially when if you've got a clay soil or a sandy soil adding compost will increase your nutritional value to begin with so you're not adding stuff afterwards so if you fix one of the big problems now add compost soil structure soil nutrients water retention so you add compost you dig it in deep enough down to 300 where the roots are always and you let it sit you let it firm up and then you can plant how long for uh oh look (laughs) for those who watch the show probably three seconds but (laughs) in reality in the fair income world yeah in the fair income world i would say to people minimum for a week two weeks get it in there water it in firm it in and then it comes down to plant selection. It's it can be that simple. Or lawn selection, whatever you're putting down, right? Yeah. Well, I I would. We steered him away from the turf just because his lifestyle wasn't going to change. Yeah. So he he still would have had to install, you know, water irrigation or whatever. But, to do that, yeah. But saying that, we steered him away and we used, okay, you know, recycled materials for the hard surfaces. But the rest came down to plant selection. So we go, okay, the soil's improved. We don't want plants that are going to eat up all that compost within six months. And therefore, he's back out there with a the chook poo and every other fertilizer. If we use plants that can tolerate um, poor soils, they can grow in sand, they can grow in sun, they can take coastal environments they can take the wind they have all those values and they still perform they're the plants we want and you're not restricted to just coastal natives you're not restricted to just succulents so Mm. we had this beautiful lush garden so we had some east coast hedges some water houses a beautiful tree we went with plants that are locally grown which also helps yeah but also they're they originate from say India, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, all the tough environments. So a lot of these plants are available now because everyone's grown because they work. Yeah. So we only use those plants and we set out the design that was bang on trend, beautiful, lush looking garden, water it in. And away you go. Where the lawn would have been, what's that now, wood chip or what, what did you uh, Yes, yeah, so we, we did wood chip, but we put down some decking and some brickwork. Right. So because he still wanted to entertain. But I said, okay, you can entertain on a deck rather than a lawn and the rest was garden so we completely surrounded him with garden which as well cooled the area because there was just more heights and more canopies and more everything of of the plants and all these these plants are happy in that stinking hot full sun you know and the other thing is too choosing plants that don't necessarily need as much maintenance so yeah so i mean that's man hours and and stuff that um hedges that grow tight to begin with not loose trees that you have to always hedge because you think about the petrol you're using and all the clippings and all that stuff that are going in the bin just get stuff that are happy to be in in your garden like one of my um the garden that i had i'm down at wollongong zero maintenance because i was never there all i do is fix other people's gardens it was just like this big tropical fruit salad bowl like it was straight out of hawaii and bali (laughs) yet the only time it got worked on was when my mum came to visit the grandkids and I could get some weeding, weeding, yeah, right. weeding hours out of it. Yeah, you know? yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it got the rainfall that we got, maintenance twice a year. I just let it go. I always say this to people, 
only plant plants that genuinely want to be in your garden, in your environment. Because you're not maintaining, you're not fertilising, you're not watering them just to make them look pretty. Well, it makes ab- absolute sense. And you remind me of, in fact, how Australia, or the colonisation, if you will, of, of Australia was started. If you can remember, Captain Philip arrived in Sydney and he couldn't grow anything. They were starving. Mm. And the whole thing was going to be c- complete failure until yep. a young convict by the names of James Roos mm. said... I'm actually a farmer from from back home in, in in Cornwall. I reckon that soil out west of the where we are is actually better on the river plains. You, you won't have to fight it. Yeah. You won't have to fight the soil out there. And yeah. Philip said, "Okay, young man, I'm that desperate. Yeah. You away you go. If you can sustain yourself for a year, yep. I'll give you another year. If you start um, giving food back to the colony, I'll pardon you and you can have the land." Yep. Of course, James Roos proved that if you start working with the local conditions and Absolutely. not fighting it, you can survive. Those principles are still relevant today. You know, although we're not setting up our own farms and stuff like that, but people who have their own plot of land out in the out in the garden, the same principles apply. People always find and go, "What am I doing wrong?" Well, well look at Look at the style of garden you're trying to achieve. Look at the hours that you can give it and look at your environment. Like you're all working against each other. So if you're willing to compromise on your dream design or just seek, you know, clever plant selection and clever plant placement, you can still get it. Mm. Address the soil, plant for your light and your wind and everything else and away you go. It's like, look, honestly, it's like designing a house yep. in terms of there's three things that go into designing a yep. house, right? And one of the very, most very important things is responding to the site. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what it looks Absolutely. like, the style of the house. I, I, I want a modern, I want a gothic. It doesn't matter. What is the site dictating? Where's the sun angle? And the site really determines the design of course, in, in, in yeah. architecture and obviously in garden. Absolutely. I feel like we should start designing together. <laughs> Anyone else pick that up? <laughs> oh, there's a lot of love in the room, folks. No, no, it's, it's really fascinating yeah. to draw the correlation. But it's simple. You put it down in bullet, bullet points of how to have a sustainable design garden. It still can be a professionally designed garden. Mm. And, I mean, if you want to go further, make sure that at least half of your plants have a flower to bring the bees and the birds back. The list goes on and on and on and on. Practice sustainability in horticulture is to practice horticulture. And we've moved away from that in the rush for everyone to get their own plot, scrambling over everyone, uh, each other just to get their, you know, their own houses and things like that. And unfortunately, these days, we don't have the bigger areas to have the chooks and to have the pigs and to have all this. But you still can have a sustainable backyard. And reflect where you live, not where you'd love to Absolutely. live. Absolutely. Live in harmony with Mother Nature. Don't try and fight her. Such wise words from Graham Rowe, who works with Jason Hodges on the Better Homes and Gardens TV team. You can re-watch the story, Small Space Trends, that Graham Rowe was talking about on Better Homes and Gardens TV website, and that segment hosted, of course, by Jason Hodges. Look, I reckon we've covered sustainability, but tell you what, in coming weeks, Adam Woodhams from our sister podcast, Garden Better, has got a new take on sustainability. He's put it in a historical context. In fact, he's drawn... A parallel between the bounty mutineers and sustainable living introduced into the South Pacific. That's a fascinating conversation coming up in coming weeks. But next week, we're talking art. Now, don't panic. You don't have to be an expert. We're going to de-snobbinise the art world with one of the most revered gallery owners in Australia, Tim Olson. He's coming in. He's also bringing one of his artists, abstract artist Marissa Purcell. They're going to talk everything about how to sort of choose the right piece of art for your home. Everything you need to know, 101 
about the art world. Hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. It's been a Seven West Media production. My producer, Loretta Farrell, executive producer, Nikki Hamilton, and I'm your host, Pete Calhoun.